Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host with Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. In the studio with us today is Frank Gillette, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the future of smart homes. Welcome, Frank. Thank you. I'm going to start with the word future, because back in the late 90s, there were neighborhoods being deployed that were called smart home neighborhoods, which is 90s is a long time ago. Yeah. So what do we mean by smart home? These days, it's technology that uses modern internet and smartphone uh, technologies, but basically putting sensors um, in the home and sometimes remote control. Um, There's certainly been earlier attempts at this going back to uh, X10 crazy stuff over power lines that was kind of flaky and that hobbyists did. Uh, But this is the first mass market push uh, for this across the economy. So I typically think of smart home as as possibly two things. Mm. I want to sense things and control things in the house. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring sort of a maximum load of media entertainment to me in the way that I like it. Is that a fair way? No, because much of today's conversation about smart home is about the first sense and control. Um, And often the entertainment stuff is not included um, under this umbrella term smart home. Um, But really people talk about the living room or set-top boxes and things like that. So that loosely gets lumped in, but often it's left out. So is this more from a security or managing temperatures or more practical utility type things? Yeah, although you all are putting your fingers on the complexity of this space. It doesn't lend itself to easy labeling. Consumers don't wake up and say, I want smart home. They wake up and say, I want to solve one particular problem. And then if you flip it over from uh, the provider or the supplier side of things, um, they set out trying to solve particular problems themselves, and none of them really in a position to, to deliver the so-called smart home. Problems for the consumer or problems that they're having with their operations? Um, it's usually trying to address and make better the experience for the consumer. Uh, occasionally, they're trying to solve some problem of their own. So from the energy company's point of view, trying to, say, uh, coax people into using energy more efficiently as an alternative to building a new power station, uh, it would be an example of trying to solve a problem on the supplier side. But, Jen, you raised an interesting point, which is the the, the home security thing. I think that's a red herring. Mm. Um, about 20% of homes have uh, home security. They pay big fees, about 50 bucks a month. And there aren't uh, a lot of homes that are willing to sign up for big numbers like that for today's version of burglar detection. I think things will be reinvented as a very different kind of value proposition that might include much of what we think of as burglar detection, but uh, in a way that's much more interesting and appealing. And so that's part of what the I talk about in, in my research is um, this value proposition of, of sort of automation, which isn't that exciting, which feels commodity, uh, which is where home security is, versus the engagement, uh, which is things that involve caring and emotion, uh, a recreation, fun, um, and and those are quite exciting and distinct. Um, and they can include elements of the automation, like say monitoring my children or my aging parent. But they include much more than just the letting me know if you know somebody didn't get out of bed. So there's two angles of attack. The first angle of attack is who plays the role of general contractor. So you brought up security. There's uh, energy efficiency or demand response. There's this whole thing of Alexa and Sonos and others and who's, who right. governs what and how do I make sense right. of that. Um, there is, in theory, a discussion of someone wants to be the general contractor on behalf of the consumer and earn, earn that revenue and sort of master that ecosystem. They're going to fail. 
because they, this technology doesn't lend itself to centralization and the economics don't. So there won't be a general contractor. This technology today or this technology in two, 2022? It's the technology and the economic interests don't lend themselves to centralization. So what, what does that say to the role of the consumer? And what does that say to the adoption rate if the consumer has to be that, that expert as a general contractor? They, they won't be, to, to sort of take your question. Um, what uh, we argue in the research is that um, there will be individual domains of smart home, um, two of them in the automation space, uh, that is the background, boring, less exciting stuff, uh, and um, multiple ones in the um, space of sort of engagement and caring. So uh, if we look at the background automation, um, there's one center of gravity that will very gradually appear around uh, insurance, home security, home maintenance, um, because the insurance people have a big interest in you taking care of your property and not filing claims. So do sort of the mortgage lenders, although they're not that active there, other than making sure you have insurance. Um, but there, there's this nexus, which I think has the potential to turn into basically home um, uh, management services, monitor my home and tell me when I need maintenance, help me find the right person, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's basically capturing spending today called insurance and turning it into a home maintenance contract. So you, you just said is the consumer won't be the general contractor and nope. there's different domains for these. Well, what are yep. the domains? Like how should one think of deconstructing what is smart home? So uh, the way to understand smart home is you have to look at where people spend money today and figure out who's got an interest in taking advantage of uh, the smart home in that space uh, and helping. Because fundamentally, when you add sensors and remote control to a product, you increase its cost and you add recurring expense for the provider that they didn't used to have to do. And that drives them nuts because then they want to charge a subscription and the customer doesn't want to pay a price premium on acquisition. They don't want to pay a subscription. Uh, so you know, can you imagine your, your home full of doorknobs and windows that want a monthly fee? That, that's nuts. So um, that would be weird. Yeah, it's not going to work. So, but, but that's the kind of weird place we're in right now is everybody's trying to run these experiments. How do I get more money and how do I get recurring revenue uh, for something that, you know, a doorknob? Like, are you crazy? So um, the, the automation side of the spectrum basically – take care of stuff, tell me when I need to know something, and otherwise I don't want to have to think about it, like uh, home security, like smoke alarms, those kinds of things. Um, it's hard to get the kind of emotional engagement that we talk about as being so important. So in that space, I do see potential for consolidation into two lumps, one around caring for the, the structure of the home uh, and ensuring it, um, and the other around uh, fundamentally energy management and, and my experience with that. Um, so, but we just named two boring, slow industries, insurance uh, and related to property management and energy and tied in there somewhere is that the telco providers trying to figure out how to turn into uh, really good service providers that provide me assistance on automation. So that's going to take quite a while to evolve. And so in the meantime, we're going to get see sort of clunky, incomplete offerings. Now, on the flip side of the spectrum is the emotion-engaging thing, and that's where I take care of my family, I do recreation and fun, um, uh, I prepare meals. Uh, and by the way, there's a bunch of spending flows associated with these things already. 
And so you can tap into these to pay for this new smart or connected technology, the smart home, but it doesn't lend itself to a general contractor, to consolidation, et cetera. Well, let me, let me jump in on that. So yeah. isn't part of, let's say, Amazon's strategy with Alexa is to front that, essentially be the voice to that range of services or skills? Isn't that, isn't that Google Home's fundamental ambition, that they would ultimately consolidate it, or just front it, if you will? Yeah, so I think, there, I think there's a huge and important difference between that front versus consolidate. So in our research, we talk about this orchestration role that the digital internet players will provide. And the, the voice agents and the apps on your smartphone are two sides of the same coin. Um, because whether you use your voice and the skills, to use the Alexa term, which are really just apps, uh, or you use an app on your phone, fundamentally you're going through one of your existing relationships to try and interact with things. But it does not uh, make sense for it to be more than a veneer. That is, you know, I can speak to my uh, smoke detectors. I can speak to um, my kitchen appliance. Um, if you're going to deeply engage with that, you're not dealing with Alexa anymore or Siri or the Google Assistant because those things don't have the domain knowledge to help me prepare a meal. Um, so I might do some surface-level control. But the other problem with, for those guys is they don't control enough revenue to get into subsidizing the device, which we talked about earlier. So if I take food as an example, I spend lots of money on groceries and restaurants every month. And right now, they're individual discrete purchases uh, with no connection. But if, if uh, you imagine a world where I actually find a provider that has food and meals that I like and I make a commitment to them to spend a certain amount a month, and I probably already do that at certain grocery stores anyway, then they'll give me an appliance that helps me prepare meals, and they'll help me arrange prepared meals that I like. So, Frank, I'm going to go back to energy management for a second, because one of the goals of utility companies is actually to compete behind the meter mm -hmm. in the home. That's right. One of the goals of Google Nest is to compete in the home for almost the same exact thing. Basically, I'm going to help you manage your consumption based upon time of day, rates, whatever the, whatever the rationale would be. How, how do we understand those competitive lines? So Nest is, is trying to arrange comfort and convenience. And as a byproduct, they're trying to help the utility companies, but they want to own the relationship. So the challenge for the utility companies is they too would like to have the relationship um, and they don't want to be disintermediated by the thermostat maker. Um, at, in, in the long run, because of the, the, the real economic flow there, a one-time thermostat purchase versus, uh, you know, 50, 100 bucks a month for electricity, um, the utility's got a lot of uh, money to work with. The problem is they don't have the skills to build those relationships. So if we extend this idea sort of on this more automation and convenience end of the spectrum, what I see the potential is for the energy companies, they need to manage the total way that they deliver the availability of energy. And sometimes that may mean investing in your home, and sometimes that may mean investing in a new energy plan or better distribution. So the potential end game here is flat rate based on the size of your property. You know, oh, I know your square footage or, or the volume of your home, because you may need to know actual height as well. Your home is this flat rate, and as long as you commit to paying that amount, 
I'll actually manage your home for both your experience and your energy generation or consumption. And I'll just show up with a new Tesla Powerwall when that suits me as a utility and install it in your home. Um, and so it, it, it just it, it flips to a total outcomes-based uh, point of view. And this is where I think smart home is going to go. Because when you start thinking about how to repurpose these spending flows and, and to help people with the outcomes they actually want, wonderful meals, uh, family caring, uh, a warm, comfortable home that where the energy uh, works through storms and, and power outages. Um, that's what's possible when now when you have sensing and remote control and much broader visibility to uh, what's going on, say, across a, a provider's infrastructure. So the outcome is the idea that I want to eat good food and have that food when I want it. And so have a good experience, you know, with family yeah. and friends. Mm -hmm. So your argument here in the Northeast where, you know, Stop and Shop is, is Stop and Shop might decide to actually bring my fridge to me, bring my oven to me, because all they care about is the outcome of me having good meals. Mm -hmm. And they'll put that hardware in if I commit to a certain spend. That's what you're referring to in terms of these economic Correct. flows. Right. So so that's why the, the research ends with this idea of subscription uh, living or the subscription economy, that if we... Think about what becomes possible when you put sensing and remote control and physical objects, connecting the physical world to the digital world. It, it's a, what becomes possible is a complete reimagining of how you achieve outcomes, who helps you, and who provides it. So from a more far-reaching standpoint, I, I'm going to use the, the food example again. That means that the, the, the stores are going to take a financial stake in people who make refrigerators. Right. So let's. So let's, you're going to take those industry lines, and you're going to say, "Well, the industry lines are interesting, but becoming less important. What's really important is the outcomes that they collectively deliver." So, right. Let's flip it around from the consumer's point of view. Right. They buy a refrigerator once or every ten or twenty years. Right. Assuming reasonable life. Um, and now we're saying they're smart refrigerators, but they cost more. Well, a lot of people balk at paying more up front. Um, and then there's the ongoing expense for the refrigerator provider if I provide smart services through it and people don't want to pay subscriptions. So then you ask yourself, well, who might have an invested interest in sort of funding those ongoing services? And you end up at the food companies and the grocery stores. But right now, we just have these crazy loyalty programs that, that try to reward me for spending as opposed to, hey, what if you made a commitment to me? And, and by the way, you know, uh, some loyalty programs, Amazon Prime, pre-fund that, right? So you pay up front and then you get a bunch of things bundled. So what we're talking about here is reconfiguring and bundling um, products, services, experiences, and effectively pre-committing to them. So there's a precedent for this. I mean, the precedent is mobile. The mobile phone was subsidized by Verizon or AT&T or Vodafone or whomever. Yeah, but that's such a different example. Mm. I want to replace my phone every two years. To your point, we have appliances that I either already own, likely, or last 10, 20 years at a time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the time horizon that we're talking about is, it, it right. seems incredibly slow. Yeah. But this would actually be a reality anytime soon. You mean for the grocery companies to start yeah. funding it? Right. So what we're seeing now is the early experiments with this. Um, and we see, for example, um, a few car companies experimenting, for example, with car as a service. So Cadillac Book, you know, you, you commit to 1800 bucks a month with them and they'll, you know, swap the car out several times a month. You need an SUV this weekend? No problem. They swap it in your driveway. And so this is the kind of experiments we're talking about. But to your point, um, 
it's such a big structural change that it, it won't happen overnight. It isn't a smartphone kind of adoption story because it doesn't involve just buying a new widget and changing your behavior. The actual economic relationships have to change. The, the, the whole value proposition of being a food company, a grocery store, an energy company has to evolve a lot to take advantage of what becomes possible when you put sensors and remote control and physical objects and connect it to the internet. Yeah, Jen, I get what your, your point is in the 10 to 20 years. But 10 to 20 years is what people do now because they own it. And at mm -hmm. some point in time, it's wearing out, but you're like, too much, too expensive to replace it. Someone else has replaced it. And you saw this in the subsidization issues, which is it used to be true that your, your phone was relevant for three years. Now, like, now if they're going to pay for it, they're going to make that easy for me. I'll, I'll do that by a third, and I want one every year. In fact, I want one every version because there's something new and different. We just haven't seen that kind of technology pace in ovens. Mm -mm. But what happens if we did? A challenge that I have is that a phone in a car doesn't have to get fitted anything. I mean, the most severe is a pocket or a garage. But a refrigerator fits into a specific space. It has a specific physical yep. limitation. How do we think of the idea that you might, you might have this rotational element within your home of things coming and going based upon what's new and cool? Well, I, I don't think the smartphone model lends itself as easily. Now, the, the earliest experiments we're seeing in the kitchen with the food example actually um, are countertop appliances, simple things like a, a, a warm water bath cooker called sous vide that you put in a pot, right? So that, that's small enough you can stick in a drawer. Um, and then the other one uh, is um, a countertop steam oven thing. That's a bit bigger, but it's basically the size of a microwave. And so that'll fit on a lot of countertops or go into a microwave slot. Um, so those are a little easier to imagine, uh, to your point, than uh, a stove or uh, a fridge. But in the case of the fridge, for example, if you reimagine the whole way that we think about storing and ordering and delivering food, um, the size fridge we need may change based on the fact that I may have regular deliveries. But this also presumes some really interesting behavior changes as well, that I'm letting service delivery people into my fridge regularly, into my house to put things in the fridge for me regularly, or that I reconfigure my fridge so it's like, I don't know, that it's the one door opens to the outside of the house and people can stuff things in on the outside without coming into your house. So there's some real structural um, changes here uh, that I think will be explored to open up new possibilities. But part of the point of the research is because we're dealing with physical appliances and behavior in the home, it this, in most cases, other, and there's some exceptions noted, this will be a gradual experimental process of figuring out what's going to work and what fits the way people want to spend money. So what you just said explains the acquisition of um, Whole Foods. Correct. And so that, that tells me that, like, if you think of an outcome as a mountain, that everyone's going to fight to be who's the king of the mountain. And so who works for whom? Who buys whom? Mm -hmm. Who supplies to whom? Mm -hmm. is, it has to, you used the word structure before. That, that, There's a structural transformation happening. It's the beginning. Based upon these outcomes. Yeah. Is this sort of the, the hard reality of customer as a center of the universe thing? It, it's the hard reality of customers at the center of the universe when you have to change uh, physical things, infrastructure, people's homes, people's appliances. Um, so it's very different than when we were doing it all in digital on apps and, and websites. Um, and then you can begin to see how it plays out in different economic spheres. 
uh, particularly if they're unlikely to combine. So I, I don't see any potential, for example, my spending on energy to be combined with my spending on food. No, I understand that. I, I guess one of the other discussions we've had, Jen, is on, on retail and the physical space of retail. And one of the dynamics that informs it is the idea that people things will be delivered to you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go someplace to go get it. Right. Um, and in this context, more things are being delivered to you, now including physical assets like the coffee maker. Mm-hmm. That's right. So how do I think of how do I think of this in, in what time frame? Because you said five years, this is going to evolve slowly. So five years, we might see some changes. Mm-hmm. When, when in your mind do we start to see some of the harder structural realities? Because in my question sits that Amazon's already bought Whole Foods. I mean, they are yeah. sort of pre-staging it. So that causes some speed. It, it catalyzes other actions to like replicate what they just did. Well, what they did with Whole Foods was get a, a retail storefront face, right? Because these guys... Amazon is all warehouses. And that um, if you, because of the emotion and the engagement that happens around food, having that local personal relationship and being able to use local grocery stores as warehouses and staging areas, and frankly, kitchens to prepare some of this prepared food. I mean, if you, if you follow this line of thinking, I think grocery stores become more local prepared food depots in, as a percentage of their total space, but they also become staging for delivery. But they still become places where you go browse to try new things and look at new stuff, like Bonobos, where you go browse the stuff and then they deliver it uh, later. Because we, I don't think we're going to give that up. So in, in the short term, we're simply talking about trying to tip into how do, how, does, how do we just make it easier for people to buy food, find recipes, and make dinner? So let's come on from a different angle for a second, Frank, which is let's talk about privacy. We've talked mm-hmm. about sensors. The home is where you live, where all the yeah. private stuff happens. Correct. And the idea would be whether video or other, you know, where you are, when you're there, how you live may become sort of a digital reality, meaning it could be mm-hmm. digi- digitally exposed. Mm-hmm. What is the current thinking about privacy as it relates to smart home? The reality for the near term and possibly for the long term is that's going to be highly fragmented. Um, and so privacy, because the, that visibility into different parts of me is um, so, somewhat segmented, fragmented, um, it's hard to put together a whole picture. But nonetheless, any particular party has some pretty private information about me. And frankly, I think a lot of the startups here aren't very well prepared to deal with this. And I think it's one of the structural challenges that will have to be dealt with is how is that information managed? And I think it's one of the reasons that the provider is trying to give something away without having uh, an, uh, something that I as a consumer actually pay for, I think that's going to be a real headache for them. Because then if they're trying to monetize my behavior in the home, that gets pretty problematic. Well, I'm at the, I'm at a, like the simpler point, which is if they start understanding my life habits, when I'm in the home and when I'm not in the home, mm-hmm. and that gets exposed, robbing my home gets to be a lot easier because they know when I'm not there. You would mm-hmm. imagine that that's got to be either because people are thinking about it or they'll think about it when one really bad thing happens and then everyone, it becomes part of everyone's consciousness. Right. So are, are you saying that, that the thought process of the sensory and the controls, privacy is not getting baked in right now? No, I don't see it getting baked in very well. There's just the standard um, you know, stuff, oh, we'll keep your stuff private, we won't share it with everyone. I don't see sort of any industry-wide thinking. I don't see any sort of standards being set. And I mean, quite honestly, it's already a problem because if you carry a smartphone, uh, the cell phone company knows when you're home and when you're not home. 
So now, but now more people will know about whether you're home or not. And furthermore, what you're doing when you're at home, you know, when you sleep, for example. So yes, more parties will know that. Um, but a whole mechanism? No, I'm not seeing enough sign on that at all. And that's, you know, another challenge that has to get worked out here. And it is, and it will be highly fragmented. So, Frank, I began this conversation with a remark that around 1999, when I was a younger man, we were already talking about smart homes, which right. is obviously a pretty modest version of that. Mm-hmm. We're now in 2018. And it, based upon what you said, it feels like there's a lot more potential with hurdles than there are tailwinds. Like this is much more of a conceptual remaking that will happen maybe not even a five-year horizon. So what does it mean to people – positioning to this thing that's amorphic, multifaceted, prone with hurdles? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to begin this idea of imagining this different home? Don't think about the smart home as a whole. Find the specific task or activity that you're trying to connect with your customer about and engage that and iterate through that. And think about privacy earlier to our earlier uh, conversation, but just expect this to be a, a difficult, challenging, complex journey but engage with it sooner rather than later. Because if you wait, uh, it just gets harder to catch up and understand what's going on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.